episode 243 of the Pie at the Pie podcast takes off now. Fly with Garmin Avionics, then grab your mobile device and make the Garmin Pilot app your cockpit companion. Get advanced functions you'll use before, during, and after every flight, including updating your aircraft's databases and logging engine data, plan, file, fly, log, with Garmin Pilot. The Pilot to Pilot podcast is brought to you by The Finer Points. The Ground School app contains knowledge and skill videos. Check it out at learnthefinerpoints.com. The TSO certified Bose ProFlight Series 2 aviation headset pairs Bose noise cancellation with optimum comfort. It's engineered to be the lightest, most compact aviation headset for an uncompromised flying experience. Start your 60-day test flight and finance with Bose Pay at bose.com slash proflight. As pilots, we know that flying is among life's greatest experiences. Learning to fly can be a challenge, but now there's an innovation in pilot training that increases efficiency, streamlines the training process, and improves student retention. The AOPA Flight Training Advantage uses an iPad app and web portals to create an adaptive, dynamic training experience that's unique to each student. Designed to address the most common reasons students drop out of flight training, the AOPA Flight Training Advantage system is used by flight schools, CFIs, and students to make training more effective, efficient, and fun. Learn how you can get the AOPA Flight Training Advantage at aopa.com slash AFTA. That's A-F-T-A. AV Nation, what is going on? And welcome back to the Pilot the Pilot podcast. My name is Justin Seams and I am your host. Today is an exciting episode and it's borderline. No, it is. It's a really exciting announcement. We are branching out. Pilot the Pilot. Think of it as Pilot the Pilot HQ with the Pilot the Pilot podcast and now the State of the Industry podcast. You have only gave me so much praise and, and loved the State of the Industry podcast with Jim Higgins. So we decided to create our own podcast. It is the State of the Industry podcast under the Pilot the Pilot brand hosted by Jim Higgins. And he is here to drop all the knowledge. This was recorded a while ago. It's taken us a while to get all this stuff figured out, uh, get everything uh, going. But we decided to record one for this channel. And then the next one he releases will be on the State of the Industry podcast channel itself. So be on the lookout for that. Make sure you follow Pilot the Pilot so you can be up to date with all the news. Hey, Aviation, I want to keep you much longer. So without any further ado, here's Jim Higgins and the State of the Industry podcast, episode one. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Pilot to Pilot State of the Industry podcast. My name is Jim Higgins, and this will be the first uh, of hopefully many podcasts that we do in the future. Uh, For those of you that may recognize my name, it's because I've been on several other podcasts uh, with Justin, and I just want to thank him up front for giving me the opportunity. I always enjoy talking about the industry, the good, the bad the unknowns that come with this, always fascinating discussions. And there's not a week that goes by, even today, where I still don't get asked about something, either through an email or a direct message, where somebody has a question about something that was brought up on a previous Pilot to Pilot podcast. So I really appreciate the opportunity. Uh, Justin and I talked about this for well over the last month and decided it was time to give this a whirl, so to speak. So we're very, very excited about it. Being that this is my first uh, podcast on the Pilot to Pilot series solo, there aren't going to be any guests today. We're just going to keep it light. I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, the my background and then also bring up the fact of what's been going on in the industry, some big topics in the past couple of weeks. 
I do intend to bring in guests as needed and as warranted based upon based upon the different issues that come up in the industry. So I look forward to that. Also, if you have any feedback, you can certainly get back to me and I'd be happy to talk about some of the issues that everyone wants to talk about. Again, I want to thank Justin for making this possible. Everybody knows he's a tremendous ambassador, a tremendous podcaster. Uh, I know that I've been hooked on listening to his podcasts for a very long time. Always very informative. And I appreciate him taking a chance on me. I'll do my best not to spoil his excellent reputation and good name. So with that said, let me just start a little bit with my background. What, you know, why am I here and who do I think I am that I can talk about the industry in great detail? Well, my day job is I'm a professor at the University of North Dakota in the aviation department. It's the largest collegiate aviation department in the United States, approaching 2,000 students. We have all kinds of programs there from unmanned to manned to commercial to safety. Uh, Many of you have probably heard of the University of North Dakota if you're in the industry, but if not, it's a fine place to visit, especially in the summer months, I might add. Um, my I've been there for about the last 20 years teaching on the faculty. I was also chair of the department for a while, and I've really enjoyed my time. One thing I have to mention is the views expressed here on this podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of the University of North Dakota or the aviation department. They are just mine alone. Now, prior to UND, I had a very wide-ranging aviation background. The most recent stints were in the regional airlines. I worked for American Eagle. You now know it as Envoy. While at American Eagle, uh, I was uh, a line check airman, and I was also the MEC chairman there for about a year right after 9-11. So we have some exciting times we can certainly draw upon there. Prior to that, I was with a company called Business Express Airlines. It was in the Northeast. Uh, I was a first officer there. And it was a Northwest, an American, and a Delta commuting partner. I was based out of LaGuardia for about six months. And then I moved up to Bangor, Maine, where I was based for several years. Uh, Prior to that, I flew as a night cargo pilot, believe it or not. I would fly every going to work about eight o'clock at night, come home at about six in the morning, flying freight around the Atlantic area of the country. And prior to that, I flew corporate in the 91 world, a very small corporate uh, operation. We had a couple planes, no jets, uh, all props, but it was a very fun experience right after college. Also about my background, you know, I'm surrounded by pilots. I grew up in a pilot household. My dad was a captain at UPS. He retired there on the 747, former fighter pilot in the Air Force in the 60s and 70s. So I was raised in that culture. I'm married to a pilot. My wife flies for a major airline. Once she's off probation, I'll Disclose that airline to you. Not that we're going to say anything controversial about that airline, but just keeping it safe. And we can talk about probation issues like that in the uh, uh, upcoming podcast. In addition, my brother's a pilot. My father-in-law's a pilot uh, at the University of North Dakota. I have a lot of friends here. Let's, I think it's safe to say, like many of you, I've got thousands and thousands of friends who are pilots. So um, I've been surrounded in this area. I've been involved for many years here. And I've greatly enjoyed it. So hopefully that gives me enough of a background to talk about some of the issues. As I mentioned, my most recent stint in the industry, I was the MEC chairman, uh, which was the highest ranking ALPA official on property. We had about 2,900 pilots there at American Eagle, now Envoy at the time. 
and it was a very tough time. Uh, I was also for a while the chair of the negotiating committee there. So I have some pretty good experience both with uh, the labor side and also how the economics within an airline works. So I'll be happy to talk about that as well. As I mentioned today, it's just going to be so, me solo talking to you about a few issues. Uh, but going forward, I will bring in guests as needed. And we will also talk about pilot hiring, some of the new pilots that have been created uh, in the previous weeks, what the trends are. Uh, we'll talk about some of the topics that are coming up. And then also we'll look a little bit to the next podcast. Uh, generally speaking, it'll be on a monthly basis if there's enough of a response and enough people want to hear more about it, or if there's a special event that happens in the industry, I'll be happy to make another um, recording in between that. But generally speaking, it'll be mid-month uh, every month from here on out or until no one listens to me anymore. So I appreciate you taking the time to make it with me this far. And uh, let's just go ahead and start with um, one of the big topics that's out there right now. And that's the JetBlue Spirit merger. As you know, uh, Spirit was in play for a merger. Frontier Airlines and their parent company, Indigo, had been making a very strong play for Spirit. And it actually looked for a while that they were going to emerge victorious in this acquisition. However, not to be uh, outdone, JetBlue came late, but they came, they came on strong and even when it looked like it wasn't going to happen, JetBlue remained steadfast and they were able to secure an agreement to acquire Spirit. Let's talk about that for just a second. Whenever there's a merger or an acquisition, it generally falls on the board, the board of a company. In this case, it'd be Spirit's board. It's not up to the CEO. The CEO may be a member of the board, but, but it's not up to the CEO. It's even not up to the employees. It's entirely up to the board, and the board has to make a singular determination. That singular determination really is what's in the best interest of the shareholders. Every board member is elected at the annual shareholders meeting for a publicly traded company, uh, and even if it's privately, they'll be elected. They will hold that position, and they have a fiduciary responsibility to get the best possible deal. So when there was a competition between Frontier and JetBlue, the board had to evaluate both proposals. And as you can probably imagine, whenever there is a competition, whenever there's two companies competing for the same business, you can get a really good deal. And that seems to be what happened here, at least to the point where the board at JetBlue and Spirit both agreed it was the right thing. So very, very uh, interesting how that played out. One thing to note is JetBlue's history of mergers and acquisitions. It hasn't been successful in the past. Some of you may remember four or five, or maybe it was even six years ago now, when Virgin America, uh, operating primarily out of the West Coast, but certainly flying nationwide, they were acquired uh, by Alaska. Kind of a last minute thing where Alaska swooped in and, and obtained Virgin. JetBlue was very much at play, and they felt, I believe, this is my speculation, but they felt that um, they should have had that merger. It would have given them a huge West Coast presence. They obviously have a huge East Coast presence, and they do have a decent West Coast presence, but it would have really solidified that network. It also would have been a common type with the Airbuses. It made a lot of sense from the complementary point of view. But Alaska came in with a much stronger proposal, at least from the perspective of the Virgin Board, and so they went with Alaska. 
So that experience was fresh in the mind of JetBlue. And when it looked like their merger and acquisition of Spirit, it's not an acquisition, I'm sorry, it's a, this one's a merger. When their merger was possibly not going to happen, they went on a campaign. And some of you on social media may have noticed a big increase in the amount of advertisements and in the amount of just reach out, PR, uh, lobbying, all kinds of things came out and about. And JetBlue made no question about it. They very much wanted to acquire Spirit. Again, it makes a lot of sense in one sense. Spirit has a common type, the A320s, which of course JetBlue has a lot of those. JetBlue also has the Embraer products, the Embraer family. So it makes a lot of sense from, you know, there, there's a lot of synergies that way. Where it may not make as much sense, but still it sure helps with growth, is the basing. You know, Spirit is all over the place. JetBlue's got bases all over the place. Spirit does have a, have a heavy uh, East Coast presence. So it will, it will be interesting to see how that plays out with the route structures. You know, with JetBlue being the surviving carrier, let's just talk really briefly about what that looks like to the employees. Generally speaking, in a merger like this, the group that ends up losing jobs are going to be the middle management people and even up into the senior management. The line employees, both, you know, for instance, pilots and flight attendants and ramp workers and passenger service agents, they generally are untouched, right? Because they're the ones that have to execute the plan where there's duplicating efforts and inefficiencies is often in the middle management. For instance, you don't need two route planners forever. That'd be one example. Another example would be in safety. You know, there, there should be one air, one office that uh, monitors the, the safety functions. No need to have two. So as the merger unfolds, different uh, people and different positions will lose their jobs as a necessary part of the merger. That's it's one of the, fa- so a merger in general is one of the fastest ways to grow and also increase your uh, operational efficiencies. That isn't always the case. There certainly have been examples of really poorly orchestrated mergers. The classic really bad merger that you may think of goes way back into the 90s with the Northwest Republic merger. Of course, the more recent America West US Air, the 2000s, uh, didn't go very well as, as well, at least in that perspective from the employee point of view. So uh, they don't always go well. What generally happens is the management teams will put together little sub teams and there'll be people from both airlines and they'll work on integration teams. So they'll work on everything from, I mean, think of everything an airline does, the the most minute details of, you know, websites and, you know, making sure the technology behind the scenes uh, mixes together well, all the way to route structure and maintenance and catering. And you could just go on and on and on. And so teams will be assigned to look at each of these tasks and they will have to decide, you know, what's going to survive, what's not, who does it better, who doesn't. Uh, it's not just going to be JetBlue dictating, this is how we do it at JetBlue, that's how you're going to do it. That's a recipe for disaster and we've certainly seen that in the past. So instead, you should, if it works well, you should see these integration teams putting together a very good a plan that takes the best of both airlines, puts them together and focuses, and then management will shrink, combined management will shrink, and then the line employees can hopefully continue to grow in their in their job. So we'll see how that works out. We'll definitely monitor. 
One of the big issues with pilots, of course, is whenever there's a merger, is seniority list integration. That's a big deal, right? So for instance, when your company either acquires or merges with another company, what's gonna happen to your relative seniority? What's gonna happen to your career expectations? You know, are you going to all of a sudden be disadvantaged or advantaged? And I can tell you that in any kind of seniority list integration, there are going to be people that end up, relatively speaking, in a worse situation. There are gonna be people that get the so-called windfall and end up in a better position. But the vast majority, if it's done well and done correctly, will end up in a relatively similar position that they were in from before the merger to the uh, you know present. So we'll we'll see we'll monitor how that goes. But let's talk about how this works. In this particular case, both Spirit and JetBlue are Alpha carriers, and so in situations like this, when both groups are represented, and in this case by the same labor union. Almost always, management will take a side seat and they will let the union work out the seniority integration. At least that's been the trend lately. And it can be pretty difficult. So what the union has done is they've adopted merger protocols that have changed over the years. In the case of ALPA, they generally use an arbitrator. And then the arbitrator will be assisted by a pilot from, in this case, JetBlue, and another pilot from Spirit who will do their best to advocate. And the arbitrator is tasked with looking at three things. I just mentioned one a moment ago. It's called career expectations. That's the biggie. We'll talk about that in a second. But they will also look at your relative seniority, and then they'll look at your equipment that you're currently flying. Those are the three things they're, the arbitrator is allowed to look at under the ALPA merger protocol. And let's talk about career expectations. So just hypothetically, if a very large airline, let's say United, were to merge with a smaller airline, let's just use something that would just be ridiculous, a ridiculous example. Let's say like an Allegiant. Okay, well, Allegiant Airlines, they don't operate wide bodies, for instance. Therefore, one could say that the career expectation of an Allegiant pilot would never be to operate a wide body aircraft. So one way that an arbitrator may look at it when they combine the seniority list as an arbitrator may end up fencing off or not allowing the Allegiant pilots to ever bid, or at least until the last seniority pilot on the United list gets, gets an opportunity, bid over to hold one of those wide body positions. And why would they justify that or how would they justify that? They would do that because it was never the career expectation of that Allegiant pilot. Now let's take a look at the JetBlue Spirit merger. Neither of them have wide bodies at present, and neither of them have announced any orders at present for that, as far as I know. And so as a consequence, the career expectations are going to be pretty similar for both. Both pilot groups, the day before the merger was announced and the day after the merger was announced, both pilot groups could expect to retire, you know, in the left seat of an Airbus or maybe a bigger Airbus, maybe like a 321 or, or, or some of that. But generally speaking, that was the career expectation, which is a great career, by the way. Don't get me wrong. I'm just framing it and relatively speaking to how they would, how an arbitrator would look at this. So at that point, once the career expectations are kind of similar, and in fact, you could make an argument that um, the, the spirit pilots never had an expectation to fly anything smaller than 
uh, an Airbus. So that could complicate things as well. But let's just assume for the second that both sides had the same career expectations. So that's going to make it easier. At that point in time, the arbitrator is going to take a look at seniority, uh, at your prospective carriers. Now, the reason why you can't just, or normally arbitrators won't just do a date of hire integration where it's, okay, you were hired July 1st, 1998, you were hired July 2nd, therefore you're, you're less senior to the July 1st person as an example. The reason why they don't do that is because Companies go through different hiring sprees. For instance, after 9-11, uh, even though JetBlue never furloughed anybody, there was a reduction in the amount of hiring that went on. So what, what the, what the arbitrator is going to look at is when were the tranches of people hired? Was there a big tranche this year and not at the other airline? So generally speaking, the goal is, is to try to award everyone their same basic relative seniority on the combined seniority list. It's very difficult. And like I said, sometimes um, it, people can perceive it, very, you know, uh, they can be very uh, upset about it. If you're a pilot, let's say you're a pilot that's been at your air carrier for 20 years and all of a sudden a pilot from the merge carrier hops over, quote unquote, hops over the top of you in seniority. They've only been there for 10 years. You know, why is it that your 10 years of seniority wasn't considered? Well, that's where it gets difficult. There definitely are going to be some people that get, at least from their point of view, bypassed. But what the arbitrator is going to look at is after career expectations is taken care of, the arbitrator is going to take a look at relative seniority. And so if that pilot at the other carrier was 50% up the seniority list, then the arbitrator is going to try to put them close to 50% on the combined seniority list. And that's where you can get those years you know, out of whack, so to speak. And that can be very, very upsetting to the pilots who feel like they've been bypassed. When you hear somebody talk about that, they're pretty passionate and it's understandable. Nobody wants to feel like they've been taken advantage of or that the work they put in at their company wasn't considered. But the arbitrator is not looking at the individual. The arbitrator is looking at the entire seniority list. And if you happen to have a group that was hired uh, more recently than others, that's the protocol that's been agreed to. So It'll be really interesting. My guess is, and it's pure speculation, nobody knows. My guess is it's not going to be a pure data hire integration. The career expectation the arbitrator is going to determine is pretty much the same. And I think you're going to see relative seniority awarded. And there will be some people that uh, get a little bit of a windfall from it. And there will be some others that feel very disadvantaged. It's probably not a perfect system. It certainly leads to a lot of negative emotions. I personally have been through an airline merger. When I was at Business Express Airlines, we were purchased by American Eagle Airlines. American Eagle was the surviving carrier. American Eagle, we now know, is Envoy. And there were pilots on both sides that felt they were completely disadvantaged for whatever reason. And so I can tell you those feelings can be very, very strong. I know people feel that way at American. I know there's pilots that feel that way at United. There's pilots that feel that way at Delta, uh, whether they were, you know, legacy Northwest or Delta pilots. So, so every airline uh, has these kind of feelings that are out there. Let's take a break from today's episode to hear from our sponsor, RAA. Guys, it's that time again. Open enrollment, that once a year window to sign up for or update your airline benefits. Are you taking full advantage of the benefits available to you or are you leaving money on the table? Our friends at RAA can help you find out with their free benefits optimization review. That's free. 
An airline specialized advisor will go over your plan and help you tailor your elections to ensure you're making the best decisions for you and your family based on your unique financial needs and goals. But hurry because open enrollment period will fly by. So schedule a complimentary benefits review today at raa.com slash pilot to pilot. That's pilot, T-O, pilot. That I mentioned was free. And now back to today's episode. Again, I don't know a better system, but for those pilots out there that can think of a better system, advocate from the inside. Advocate with your unions, whether it's ALPA or not, and say, hey, we need to take a look at this. Here's something to consider. Here's a better way to do it, et cetera. Uh, Like I said, right now, I can't think of a better system, but that doesn't mean it doesn't exist. So we'll see what happens going forward. Uh, One of the other things that's going to be really interesting with this merger is Spirit's business model is very different from JetBlue's business model. I mean, I'm not going to say extremely different, but it is it is different. Spirit had the ultra low cost uh, carrier model. Uh, some would say JetBlue was one of the original low cost carrier uh, models, but um, certainly you can't say that anymore. And so it's going to be really, really interesting to see what happens when Spirit has to kind of abandon some of that low cost. Some, some of the things Spirit may do that they may not do under JetBlue is some of the hub, hub bypass routing you know, where they can go direct to different markets. So the people to pay attention to from the business side are going to be the route planners and the route integration. Uh, It's just going to be really, really interesting to watch how that that plays out. And we'll see. Like I said, generally speaking, mergers have been successful from a business point of view. The ones that haven't been super successful are the ones that had very dissimilar business plans coming into it. Uh, Now, it's not like, Spirit and JetBlue were both international wide-body operators flying around the world. So they're not super dissimilar, but from a business point of view, for instance, ancillary income, which is a big part of business revenue for airlines, there certainly are some differences. So we'll see how that uh, how that benefits. One last little piece to mention here, and then we'll move on to the next topic, is it will be interesting to watch what the Department of Justice does because in the United States, whenever there's a merger of this magnitude, the Department of Justice gets to weigh in and decide whether or not it's in the public interest or not. I don't foresee any issues here at all. However, this will create the fifth largest airline by most metrics in the United States behind Southwest. And if that's the case, that will get some scrutiny. And one of the tests that the DOJ will look at is they'll look at anti-competitive practices. They'll take a look at what might happen to the consumers as well in terms of uh, air prices and fares and things like that. And so generally speaking, after the Deregulation Act in 1976, the government became more of a sideline bystander and their goal was to create as much competition as possible. We can talk about deregulation, or I think it's more aptly put, regulatory reform because the industry was not completely deregulated. But we can talk about that in a future episode, whether or not that worked or not. Uh, But that is the one thing that is kind of a remnant from prior to 1976 deregulation is the uh, government will still look at whether or not a merger is good for people or or not. And we have seen examples in the past where the government has said, nope, they're not going to let that go through. And it could also lead to court costs. It could lead to all kinds of bad fallout. Also, During a merger, these integration teams I talked about earlier generally comprise about one-third to up to one-half of your management. So imagine if you take one-half of JetBlue's management 
and one half of spirits management, and you mix them together into these integration teams and have them work on the integration, that's two large groups that are not focusing necessarily on the day-to-day core mission of their current airline. So there's going to be a lot of time and effort, and, and that's a big investment for both companies. And when it doesn't happen, uh, that can become really, really difficult. So we'll keep our eyes on that and see how that goes. But uh, hopefully everyone understands how the seniority list integration is going to go. We'll monitor the business plan aspects and we'll see how it goes. The one other topic I wanted to talk about was just kind of a little byproduct, a little note that came about the other day, and that was Breeze Airlines. For those of you that don't know about Breeze Airlines, that is a company that was started by Needleman, who was the original founder of JetBlue. And he also, prior to that, was at Morris Air and sold his company to Southwest. By all indications, a massively successful airline executive who's been very, very successful in almost every single airline endeavor he's undertaken. I have no doubt, and I would never count him out, that Breeze is also going to be successful. But this past week, it was announced that the National Mediation Board has certified that ALPA will be the union at Breeze. And this was something, and and, and Neilman was on record at JetBlue before they went uh, union as well, and they went years after he left, but that he also didn't want a union at JetBlue either. And he was successful for many years in holding off the union, Um, not him personally, but the company was successful. And we can talk about union avoidance. There's law firms that specialize in that, how to keep unions off your, your property. But in this particular case, it happened almost right away. Breeze, it was a close vote. I think it was 26 to 21. You just need 50% plus one. It's a supervised election by the NMB. And what caught my attention was the reaction by Breeze management. They immediately said they intend to go to court and get this overturned. And, you know, I happen to teach labor law as one of the aspects in our graduate school at the University of North Dakota. And I am familiar with some of these motions. But it's pretty unusual by my recollection for a company to try to overturn that. In most cases, it's usually the union when they don't get the required 50% plus one that will come back and, and, and they'll say all kinds of things. There's the, a concept known as laboratory conditions, which means during a union organization, the company can't cast dispersions on any particular labor union or show preference. They also can't put their own management employees in on the vote, which, of course, makes sense. And so these are things that often a labor union will sue about if their union doesn't get certified during one of these certification rounds. But in this case, it's the opposite. You have the company that appears to be threatening some type of appeal uh, to the union. And so the only thing I can think of is uh, I'm sure they'll, they'll have a very good law firm come up with some interesting ideas that might be appealable. I, I don't know. But one thing I think they might say is that there should have been more people allowed to vote. And, and the reason why they might say that is because a lot of those folks might be more on the management side. And maybe prior to the vote, the NMB classified them as management employees and ineligible to vote. And that might be something that Breeze says they should have been allowed. You know, they only have to come up with, it looks like, five votes or six votes. So they, if, they can, if they can get the, the appeal first, we'll go back to the NMB. Then I believe it goes to an administrative uh, law judge. Um, and then after that, they can go to, you know, a federal district court to, to appeal. Uh, but it's a very unusual reaction for them to say that. 
And then one other aspect to talk about is just because ALPA got certified, it doesn't mean that a labor contract, that a collective bargaining agreement is in place presently. That's going to probably take, as we've seen, it can take anywhere for up to a year. If management is not playing ball on that, it may take longer than a year. So it's going to take a while before the pilots there get their first uh, contract to be put in place. So before then, it's status quo. Uh, This all comes about from the Railway Labor Act that was passed in the 20s. And it says basically everything stays status quo until a new agreement comes in place. So everything's going to be status quo. So whatever... The reasoning was for the positive vote towards a labor union, uh, things will stay status quo for a while. It'll be very, very, again, interesting to watch how this plays out. I do think that what might have surprised Nealman a little bit this time around that he hasn't faced in the past is the fact that there are a lot of opportunities for pilots nowadays, both at the regional level, uh, at the low-cost carrier level, and of course, at the legacies. And don't forget about UPS and FedEx who have some of the best contracts you'll ever see. This didn't necessarily exist when JetBlue was created back in the late 90s. You know, there were a lot of excess pilots out there looking for jobs. And so I think that um, the speed of a union certification, which, by the way, in my opinion, was a foregone conclusion in this environment, you know, wrong or right, I think it was just it was going to happen. But the speed at which it happened, I think, was surprising. Also, as you know, Breeze has been looking at getting pilots from overseas and bringing them into the U.S. under a, a visa program. All of these ideas would have never even been considered when JetBlue was forming. So I think there have been some dramatic landscape changes that maybe maybe Breeze knew about, maybe they were aware of, maybe they have plans, or just maybe they were surprised. And I think they're starting to see some of these surprises kind of rear up and catch them off guard. The business plan there is going to be fascinating to watch as well, because as you know, it's point to point and uh, it's basically hub bypass. And there can be some long segment lengths. It's on the uh, Airbus 220. So again, fascinating time to be in the industry to see how all this shakes out and whose business plan will come on top. Uh, what we're going to do, at least my plan in the next podcast, is to t- take a really deep dive into the pilot shortage. Just as a little teaser for that, for those of you that um, know my background, this won't be a surprise, but for those of you that don't know, you know, back in 2009, myself and a colleague, Kit Lovelace, one of my mentors from the University of North Dakota, he and I made the very fir- our very first pilot forecast, and we delivered it to the military because they had questions about whether or not there were going to be enough pilots in the future. And back in 2009, we had indicated that there were some fundamentals in the market that were going to cause big problems for the pilot supply going forward. Of course, back in 2009, we were uh, in a bathtub recession, which means that we had bottomed out and there was no increase in sight. And this was causing a little bit of um, <laughs> consternation. So we nobody believed us. They thought um, we were just trying to bolster our University of North Dakota flight program, which, by the way, we don't really have to do that because we're a nonprofit. And, you know, I mean, there's, <laughs> we're not motivated by profit there. And so it was kind of interesting that, no, we were just looking at the market fundamentals. So we started publishing our forecasts. And then a funny thing happened. They started really panning out and the airline started seeing, oh, wow, there really are some issues here. And then as the retirements kicked in and as the growth kicked in, there were all kinds of fundamentals that kind of lined up to get us to where we are today. 
of course, you have ALPA and the other pilots unions and a lot of even um, other interested parties in the industry saying, what are you talking about? There is no pilot shortage. There's a pilot pay shortage. There's a, a pilot benefit shortage, whatever the case may be. Then you have people on the other side saying, no, no, there's a shortage. There's just a flat out shortage. Well, the question is, who's right? And what we'll do on our next podcast is we'll take a really deep dive into that and take a look at the numbers. I'll show you some of the models that we developed at UND. I'm not trying to brag at all, but the last model we developed for um, the airlines that had a lot of good data in it was a, it ended up being about 97% accurate in terms of number of pilots that were hired in the ensuing years. It was, it was crazy, crazy accurate. I, I don't think we could ever get that accurate again. But the point is, is I think we have some credibility to talk about this. And just as a little teaser answer for who's right, is there the labor unions right that there's not really a pilot shortage, there's a pilot pay shortage? Or is the industry, some of the industry folks right when they say, no, there's a pilot shortage? You know what the truth is? They're both right. And we'll talk about that and explore that in much more detail. So that's it for today. I do want to thank you very much for giving me your time to listen. I would welcome any feedback. Again, we'll plan on having some guests in the future, but this has been the Pilot to Pilot State of the Industry podcast. Thank you. And that's a wrap of the State of the Industry podcast. Let me know what you think. I think this is going to be an awesome branch off of the Pilot to Pilot brand. And I think Jim is just perfect for it. I can't wait to see what he's able to do with this and really create the brand uh, on his own and just see what he can do, see who he can interview, see who he can talk to, and just have some great, great information for you all. Stay tuned for next week as we might have one other podcast that's going to be under the brand as well. But Aviation, that's it for me. I hope you're having a great day. And as always, happy flying.